electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. Today on our podcast, recognizing Juneteenth and celebrating black business. Lisa Lewin, accomplished consultant for multinational corporations and co-author of the Business for Racial Equity Pledge. Driving for business performance doesn't mean checking your good judgment and your common sense and your values at the door. And 99 years after one of the worst acts of racial violence in American history, what happened in Tulsa nearly a century ago, the U.S. legacy of racism, and how local entrepreneurs on Black Wall Street are faring amid two deadly crises. Gallery owner Rico Wright. I was already consumed by COVID. That's enough on its own. And then it was quantified by, you know, the racial tensions. The fight to stay afloat and the resilience of Tulsa's Black business community. Shop owner Vanita Cooper. This is not just a place where Black people lost all their businesses. You can see that new businesses are emerging, the ashes of the old. And an investor and entrepreneur working to dismantle the systemic barriers to success for Black and Brown founders. Melissa Bradley. I'm afraid because people are throwing money at the problem and not really understanding all the structural barriers. Those stories, plus a podcast-exclusive interview with Black VC's Frederick Gross about Black and Brown representation in venture capital. It's Friday, June 19, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up on today's podcast, we observe Juneteenth alongside millions of other Americans. It's a 155-year-old holiday commemorating the day enslaved African Americans learned of their freedom. On this day, June 19th in 1865, Major General Gordon Granger of the Union Army arrived in Galveston, Texas and informed the enslaved black population that the Civil War had ended and slavery had been abolished. 1865. That's over two years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation took effect. Texas and the other Confederate states ignored the proclamation and in doing so, submitted enslaved African Americans to 30 extra months of uncompensated labor and inhumane treatment. This day, the day honoring the reinstatement of freedom that should have never been taken away, the day that freedom was lawful and yet still withheld represents to many Americans the difference between the ideals of the American dream and the reality for black people in this country. The Juneteenth holiday has largely been observed by the U.S. black population alone, and efforts to make Juneteenth a national holiday have fallen short in Congress. As of 2020, though, 47 states and the District of Columbia have all passed legislation recognizing Juneteenth as either a state holiday or a day of observance. This year, Corporate America is also making an unprecedented move. Several large companies are honoring the day as a paid holiday for employees. Google, Uber, General Motors, Ford, J.P. Morgan, Nike, and others are observing Juneteenth today. CNBC reporter Jane Wells reported today from one center of commerce that's also marking this special day. All the dock workers at all 29 West Coast ports, including here at the largest largest port complex in the country, are taking an eight-hour work stoppage today for Juneteenth. 
And up at the port of Oakland, where the local is 75 percent black, they are going to have a, uh, a march and a caravan. As local president Trent Willis says, there is systemic racism some, at times still even within the union. We've had uh, incidents of uh, hanging nooses um, that we've since addressed. Um, and just just uh, here and there, we've had some some uh, evidence of systemic racism uh, showing its ugly head uh, here where we work every day. Corporate America is all in on this, saying that Juneteenth will be a paid permanent holiday, including Target, which will pay working employees today time and a half. Other companies are still open, but canceling meetings like Amazon, which will offer workers a variety of opportunities online to reflect on the day. And at GM, where in many plants the work will continue, they will stop for eight minutes and 46 seconds in recognition of the death of George Floyd. One note about the ports, guys. In this union, dock workers are allowed one work stoppage a month. They are all happening to take it together today. Back to you. Okay. Uh, Jane, uh, thank you. Uh, and thank you uh, for, that, for that report. Uh, it's, it's remarkable to see uh, what's happening around the country. And we're going to continue that conversation uh, right now. Uh, a little bit more about what the business community can do and uh, what they are doing to try to step up to address inequality and justice. We're joined by Lisa Lewin. She's the co-founder and managing partner of Ethical Ventures. It's a manage- management consultancy. Lisa's also the co-author of the Business for Racial Equity Pledge, which uh, since launching last week has now gained more than 1,000 signatures from CEOs and executives across the country. And good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Tell us about this this pledge before we get into maybe some of the larger issues uh, taking place across this country. Well, first, thank you, Andrew, for for having me and for making space on your show for important conversations like this. So the Business for Racial Equity Pledge, the seeds of it started a couple of weeks ago during the nationwide protests and outpouring of grief over the death of George Floyd um, and every other black life cut prematurely short by a fatal encounter with the police. And so, you know, look, I've been a business executive for 25 years, um, a senior operating executive and an advisor to C-suite leaders and boards. And so I've seen my fair share of PR polished uh, thoughts and prayers type statements come out. And that's what I expected. And instead, as you just shared, um, it seems like this time is a little different. The statements were bolder and leaders are starting to make commitments that show that they're ready for real change. So I gathered a group of, um, of other executives, um, all members of a group called the Leadership Now Project. It's a group of um, mostly Harvard Business School graduates and leaders that are interested in um, the health of our democracy and society. And together we wrote this pledge and it covers three areas where businesses who want to walk the walk and not just talk the talk around racial justice, um, things that they can pursue specifically in the areas of policing, voting and economic inclusion. And so, you know, you talk about getting beyond the press release. What do you think that really is going to look like? And how are you going to measure the commitments that so many of these signatories have now made? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about why what's in the pledge and why we put it there. So, you know, you know, right up front, we we have an ask for business around policing, which is we want businesses to use their considerable clout and sway that they have as job creators um, and as uh, contributors to the you know political landscape to get things like police reform and accountability on the agenda. 
Um, that is where at the state level and the local level where these issues and where laws around public safety and law enforcement are made and business can have a very big voice there. Um, the second area is really in voting. You know, um, we're asking for business to really put pressure on, on states to ensure safe access to the ballot box. Um, you know, listen, since the Voting Rights Act was uh, gutted a few years back, it's actually been getting harder, Andrew, in a lot of states for people to vote, especially for black voters to vote. Um, and that's been made all, all the much harder um, now in this pandemic. Just look at states like Wisconsin and Georgia, where, um, you know, on the other hand, since Citizens United, it's actually getting easier and easier for businesses to really have meaningful influence on public policy. So, you know, one of our beliefs is that, you know, as regular people feel like they have less and less say at the ballot box, they're going to be turning to business even more because they know that that, that they have influence um, to, uh, you know, to, to, to sway on issues that they care about, whether that's racial justice, climate change, gun control, and everything else. So we want businesses to step up um, to, uh, to protect everybody's right to vote. And then the last part of the pledge is really asking for businesses to double down um, on areas of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are things that are already on a lot of companies' radars, and if they're not on your radar, they should be. Um, and this is about you know diverse hiring practices and board diversity. And if you're an investor, looking at your investment capital and seeing how much of it is going to black entrepreneurs, how much of it is going to black fund managers, um, black venture capitalists. So that's within the pledge. That's what we're asking for businesses to do. And, um, and like you said, we've been really heartened to see um, incredible, incredible support from across the business community and finance, media, tech, real estate. I think people are really hungry for change. Lisa, let me ask you this, though. Um, I consider this, and I think you consider this, an apolitical issue, the things that you just laid out. And yet all of them, to some degree, are political. And some, some CEOs worry about the politics. The CEO of the AMC Cinemas thinks wearing a mask uh, or requiring people to wear a mask is political. And so the question is how far you think CEOs can go and what you would tell them about the politics of this. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, look, um, there's a difference between an issue being politicized and an issue being political. To me, something as simple as public health uh, should not be political. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, my work, you know, you know, I run a strategy consulting firm that, that helps leaders make these kinds of decisions. And one of the things that we say to them is, you know, driving for business performance doesn't mean checking your good judgment and your common sense and your values at the door. Um, so that's one thing I would say, um, you know, and then and then the other thing that I would say is that, you know, when uh, business puts its muscle behind something, change happens, meaning business can actually help to lead and say, hey, politicians, these should not be political issues. Protecting the public safety, right. um, protecting public health, making sure that everybody can vote these cannot and should not be political issues. And it's precisely because business does have a big voice that I think they have an opportunity um, and the influence to change that narrative. And then, Lisa, I wanted to talk to you a little bit to, about the efforts the companies are making to diversify boardrooms and managements and, and the like. And, and something that I've heard in the past two weeks, you know, a lot of companies have even stepped up in the past couple of weeks and, and have named uh, a number of African-Americans to certain boards um, have 
uh, hired or promoted uh, certain people. Um, and then you've heard on the other end, and, and, and I want to be sensitive in how we talk about this. I've heard people say, well, is this tokenism? I mean, there's there's a lot of debate in these institutions about how to go about doing this. Sure. I mean, you know, I, I would say look at the data, right? There is plenty of, of data out there that proves that businesses with diverse boards, with diverse senior leadership teams do better. And that's for a lot of reasons. It's because you're bringing more consumer insight into the room. It means that you are bringing more creative friction into the room and making better decisions. And it means you're making sure that you don't have blind spots. So, you know, I think that the businesses that are smart and the ones that, you know, got on top of this early um, are, are seeing success. And, and if you have and if you aren't thinking very thoughtfully about how do you bring, you know, the full and often untapped potential of all kinds of workers into your um, all kinds of workers into your workforce, all kinds of directors onto your board, then you're missing out. And and I'd say it's more of a tax on your business um, by not doing it and, and an accelerant when you do do it. Uh, Lisa, I want to thank you uh, for joining us this morning. I want to thank you for what you're what you're doing. And uh, we hope to have you back uh, to hear about your progress over the next coming weeks and months. I'd appreciate that. Thanks so much, Andrew. Next on Squawk Pod, remembering the Tulsa race massacre and celebrating the value and the resilience of black business in America. Small business owner Rico Wright. We came from the ashes after the massacre, after they burned down our community. And once again, we've risen high above. And supporting businesses from Black Wall Street to the main streets across America. Serial entrepreneur and investor Melissa Bradley on what sustainable success for black and brown businesses and for the entire U.S. economy could look like. I think we have to realize that while you may not see us, there is over one million black businesses uh, that employ eight million people and generate a trillion dollars. So don't cap us. Uh, Don't give us a ceiling. Give us a floor. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Almost exactly 99 years ago, a successful pillar of early black entrepreneurship was burned to the ground by a white mob in Tulsa, Oklahoma. An estimated 300 black people were killed. Thousands of others were arrested in the city's Greenwood district, affectionately known then and now as Black Wall Street. Over a thousand homes were destroyed and 35 city blocks burned, all between May 31st and June 1st of 1921. Though it's one of the worst acts of racial violence in American history, the destruction of Black Wall Street isn't required learning in formal American history education. In fact, it was just last year, shy of a century after the attacks in Tulsa, that they were officially included in the Oklahoma public school curriculum. 99 years later, black Americans are still fighting the systemic racism that gave rise to those deadly days in Tulsa. Rihanna Taylor! Rihanna Taylor! Hands up! Go to 
three and a half weeks since the first police brutality protest in the wake of George Floyd's death, demonstrators around the world are still calling for systemic disruption to America's legacy of racism. And if fighting for justice and economic opportunity weren't enough, business owners, particularly black and brown business owners, have been hit disproportionately hard by the physical and financial impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. CNBC went to Tulsa's Greenwood District in 2020 and asked local black entrepreneurs about their community and their resilience. Vanita Cooper. Tulsa is a resilient place. It is a community that has overcome a lot. Glory Wells. There has been lots of challenges and it's oftentimes felt like people have tried to get rid of us, but you just keep on pushing forward. Enrico Wright. We came from the ashes after the massacre, after they burned down our community. And once again, we've risen high above. These are the new entrepreneurs of Black Wall Street and they're battling COVID-19 and living through an historic revolution. Rico Wright owns the Black Wall Street Art Gallery and says the struggle for his business is real. Here I am at the start of this pandemic with absolutely no model for some online component. And day after day, I'm just losing money. I've got bills piling up and I realize this is because we weren't being creative. We launched a new clothing line as a result of it. I went straight to my webmaster and said, hey, we need to revamp the website for the gallery. It was mind blowing to see the revenue coming in because when you're in devastation, you know, you're sort of down and out. I mean, I was already consumed by COVID. That's enough on its own. And then it was quantified by, you know, the racial tensions. And I thought to myself, okay, now we're bringing traffic here, which means it increases the likelihood of something dramatic happening that's reminiscent of the massacre. But protesters and mobilized activists in the last month brought new hope and new business for Wright's Gallery. Oh my goodness, the support has been astronomical, particularly white people who want to become allies. They're asking, what can I do to help? They're wanting to spend money with Black-owned businesses. They bought everything. Right next door, Silhouette Sneakers and Art, a high-end sneaker shop also struggling with the pandemic, found a new lifeline. Vanita Cooper has been using Instagram to bolster her online sales. I think the harder hit people are financially, the less viable it is for them to invest in sneakers. Before the pandemic, we were really focused on getting people into our store. We started something called Sneakerheads of Tulsa, where we would feature local sneakerheads. It was just an invitation to continue to engage with us. One of the lessons that we've taken from this time, the pandemic, the racial tension, the different things that have been thrown at us is that we need to be vigilant and we need to adapt. There's no way that I could have ever predicted anything like this. I literally can't even imagine what happens next. There are people on both sides that I feel a great responsibility to, people who don't believe that, you know, Black entrepreneurship can be successful. There are people who, you know, are really banking on it. You know, they really look to us, especially here on Black Wall Street. Down the street, a soul food restaurant has also been working to stay afloat. Glory Wells oversees operations at Wanda J's Next Generation restaurant with her sister. Their grandmother first opened the restaurant on Black Wall Street in 1974. She was confident enough to start something, to stick with it, and keep on pushing for it despite whatever was thrown her way. I grew up in the restaurant. I've been cooking since I was about eight years old. When the pandemic first hit, it was very, very scary. Wanda J's restaurant revenue was down 45%, but demonstrators brought the Wells sisters new business. 
I did not expect for just so so much business to where you can almost not even like keep up or take a breath. I did not expect it. Our revenue has doubled, which is a tremendous blessing. Gallery owner Rico Wright and sneaker shop owner Vanita Cooper are pushing ahead with hope and determination. We've already had the path laid from the past. So we know exactly what we need to do. We put our nose to the grind. We think of creative ideas to come together, just as they did in rebuilding Black Wall Street. I want people when they come to this city to see that this is not just a place where Black people lost all their businesses. This is a place where you can see the resilience among the people. You can see that new businesses are emerging in the ashes of the old. Here's Joe Kernan today on Squawk Box. Well, beyond uh, Black Wall Street, black businesses continue to face a variety of hurdles in getting off the ground, starting at the funding stage. Of over $80 billion in venture funding uh, per year, only 1% goes to black entrepreneurs and even less to black female founders. Joining us now to discuss closing the opportunity gap for black businesses and the systemic barriers for black success, Melissa Bradley, founder of 1863 Ventures, co-founder of Eureka a for-profit, small and medium business mentorship platform. She's also a professor at the Georgetown McDonough School of Business. Melissa, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, Thank you for having me. I think about small business and I think about communities and small business is the lifeblood of the community. And and progress in small business in in black communities is what we need to, to strive for to, to make gains. But so far, it, 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 while there has been some, it's really tough to move the needle. Hard to really see that it's moved at all for a lot of reasons. And, and can you go over both the hurdles and what you see as solutions to those hurdles? Sure. Well, again, thank you for having me. And, and this is an important topic, I think, as we uh, recognize Juneteenth today. And I think all of America's had a history lesson And uh, Tulsa is just one of many examples where black businesses have been the cornerstone of our communities, and in many cases, the cornerstone of larger communities. And we consistently, though, have faced these hurdles of lack of access to capital. Uh, The percentage of black businesses that receive PPP is minimal uh, and should be embarrassing. Uh, And part of that is because of structural barriers in the system that we lack bank relationships, and not because we're not qualified, but there are no banks in some of our neighborhoods. Uh, And the initial PPP program did not support CDFIs, community development financial institutions, which is where we find ourselves, or or alternative lenders. We also know that pattern recognition in the venture capital space is significant. I feel more comfortable because I look like you, because I know where you went to school, because I know the golf club you hang out, and we're not there. Uh, Oftentimes, because we're working two to three jobs or running a business that literally takes all of our time and doesn't allow us to have the same social capital, but we do have social capital within our community. So I would say that the the three of the biggest hurdles are lack of access to capital. I would say lack of uh, support from investors and the belief in our ability to be entrepreneurs. And then I would say all the other kind of non-financial barriers of poor educational opportunities in our communities and the like that all lead up to lack of access for us in the same trajectory uh, that many white businesses have. There's the you point out I mean, family connections, alumni networks, uh, all of this brings capital uh, more easily to people that have those. And then indirectly, black founders don't have these so-called accelerator programs where, you know, they got to pay for lawyers. They got to pay for credit. They got to right. pay for Google credit. So to, to launch a business 
uh, is more difficult, costs more money. So you have no, you have difficulty getting capital, and you actually need more capital to launch a successful business. But you point out the, the metrics that show that once launched, you might have a better chance uh, with one of these uh, companies and with uh, a company that's e- that easily does get funded. Absolutely. You know, as a professor, I did research two years ago that showed that it costs at least a quarter of a million dollars more for a black entrepreneur to start the same exact business as their white peer. For the very reasons you mentioned, uh, we have lawyers, but we don't necessarily have big Silicon Valley term sheet driven lawyers. And so we pay for those. Uh, If you're not in an accelerator program, which oftentimes you're excluded from because you don't have a team, uh, then you don't get the ad credits that oftentimes help subsidize your marketing costs. And so it's a huge hurdle um, that we have to deal with. Black community is resilient. Great Depression, we outperformed uh, white businesses by over 30 percent. So I think that there's a level of resilience and intellectual capacity uh, and and social capital that looks different uh, that allows our businesses to be successful. But let's not be mistaken, without those infusions of capital, we don't reach the same level of scale. You know, black women, as you mentioned at the intro, are starting businesses six times faster than the white male peers, but we're handicapped without those social capital networks and access to capital and just access to other institutions that could accelerate, as they say, our progress. And so our progress is slower, but we get there. Melissa, you you point out on our disruptor list, CNBC, we do acknowledge that it's not very diverse. And you say, of course it's not. How could it be? Because it's structurally, it's almost impossible to do something like that. And you say, look, we we have people becoming doctors, lawyers, that we we have a curve. Why not be able to get a loan uh, from somewhere on a a curve with different metrics for getting a loan? Because it's much more difficult to get that uh, to get that initial loan. And and there's other ways to I think that you have suggested to lean in. It just occurred to me that I've seen so many Fortune 500 and S&P companies commit money after uh, George Floyd, commit money to trying to do things. Why not, why not have a percentage of that committed to VC or, or to funding or to, to loans or to making it easier? Why, instead, I don't know what they're going to, you know, they, they seem to have trouble finding effective ways to earmark some of that. Why not do it here? Right. Right. Well, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I, I think that, that I'm excited that people are aware, uh, but awareness is the top of the funnel. We have a lot to do to, to help really impact and accelerate the, the black community uh, uh, in terms of capital. Um, I acknowledge that people have done that. As, as I mentioned uh, to the producer, though, I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm afraid because people are throwing money at the problem and not really understanding all the structural ba- barriers. And so if you give me a million dollars and you give a white peer a quarter of a million dollars, my money is gone before the business opens and, and his or hers is probably thriving. And so I'm afraid that people don't truly understand the cost of being a black entrepreneur and throwing a couple of million dollars at the problem is not going to solve right. it. But I do appreciate the efforts. I, I will say you know, we also have seen that the 15 percent uh, that people want right. to give to shelf space. And again, I think that's a great floor. But I think we have to realize that while you may not see us, there is over one million black businesses uh, that employ eight million people and generate a trillion dollars. So don't cap us 
uh, don't give us a ceiling, give us a floor, give the yeah. corporations a floor. And so I do hope that there's an opportunity for us to expand behind beauty, beyond beauty and health I mean, and think about the SaaS and the technology and the infrastructure uh, companies that we have and give us a chance. One, one quick thing. And when people yeah. do give money to venture capitalists, give it to black, black venture capitalists because we can find them. I think it's a waste of money to spend those dollars on scouting costs and further reduce what that end investment is. So there's lots of opportunities for folks to lean in. They just need to get a little uncomfortable right. and think outside the box. Well, the, the purse strings at a lot of the VC places aren't, aren't run by people of color. So you're not, it, it goes there, but it doesn't necessarily get to, to where it's supposed to go. You commend Andreessen Horowitz for, for getting involved, but you're right. $2.2 million based on, on other investments that they're able to make. The SoftBank investment of $100 million is, is, a, is a better start. But it, it's just, if it goes to a place where it's not a person that, that knows how to loosen the purse strings is not going to work anyway. So, and th- so it, it seems like a vicious circle. That's right. All and right. it also has to be not just that they know how to find us, but they understand what our, what our challenges are and they're willing to open those doors. Right? The beauty of venture capital oftentimes is not the money. It's the connections and, and the acceleration of partnership opportunities. And if right. you don't understand us and you don't understand our business, so you, you need the capital, you need the coaching, you need the connections, uh, you need the community. And so there's a lot to be done. So, again, I, I don't want to poo-poo uh, the money coming right. out, but I think people need to think a little bit harder uh, because I, I think it's also unfair. You're putting a price on us that, that is completely undervalued uh, and you truly don't understand the market opportunity that exists with a million businesses. You're probably going to fund three <laughs> with $2 million um, or you're going to shortchange us by giving giving us 25,000 okay. when somebody else would have gotten 2 million in and of themselves. Thanks for, uh, for, for coming on today. And we, uh, we'd like thank to you. check back with you and see how if we can move, continue to move the needle because it's difficult, but, but thank you. I look forward to it. Okay. Thank you. Coming up on Squawk Pod, a conversation with Black VC co-founder Frederick Gross about Black representation in venture capital and how to upend the structures maintaining inequity. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Squawk Pod from CNBC. After 1863 Ventures' Melissa Bradley's interview on Squawk Box this morning, I spoke to Frederick Gross, whose work in the venture capital community in many ways works in tandem with Melissa's. Hi, Frederick. It's good to hear from you. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. So you are a venture capitalist at Storm Ventures, which participates in early rounds of funding 
for tech companies, but you also co-founded Black VC, which works in a different part of the venture capital ecosystem. Can you share a little bit about this firm and why the work you do there is so important? Yeah, no, happy to. So Black VC is a, a nonprofit I helped co-found just about three and a half years ago with uh, Sydney Sykes. And the real focus uh, of that organization is to bring light to the lack of equity that exists in venture and tech, particularly for black individuals, uh, um, and really sh- sort of bring to the, the, the foreground the fact that only 2% of venture capitalists in the United States are black and less than 1% of venture-backed uh, founders are black today. And I felt, uh, along with many others in the, the community, that these are problems, but that if we could come together as a community of black venture investors, we could sort of aggregate ourselves and utilize our numbers while still small, but still meaningful to showcase that these are problems and start to drive to more change uh, explicitly by driving to increase the number of black venture capitalists that are, exist in the United States. We just heard from Melissa Bradley, who does similar work at Eureka and 1863 Ventures, and her companies focus on opportunity gaps for black and Latinx entrepreneurs throughout the entire financial system. I wonder how venture capital fits in. So much of ventures predicated on networks themselves, right? Whether those are networks that allow you to hire new talent into your firm or networks that drive in top of the funnel deal flow, um, which are effectively the the pool of of companies and founders a fund might meet that they'll invest in. Um, and, And ultimately, you know, I think, you know, the black community particularly has a huge disadvantage in venture capital because we don't have a lot of representation, which makes it that much harder to drive connections in, to have a community itself. Um, and ultimately, because of historical wealth inequalities that persist today, there isn't a lot of capital uh, fundamentally that, that, that exists. Um, and Black VC is trying to solve for some of this by at least building some of that community, proactively going out to build connections with other diverse communities that exist, whether that's the Latinx or Indian or other diverse communities broadly, um, but also within the broader Black diaspora tech companies themselves. Um, and as when it comes to the capital problem, I mean, really what we're trying to you know, showcase in venture is that we as a community need to structurally think about how we sort of think about the early founding of companies. Uh, and explicitly, it's the, the friends and family round that I think doesn't often get thought about in the context of how that impacts communities of color. You know, we have this, this, this early financing round where we expect our founders to raise sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars from friends and family, from angel investors. But it's predicated on this belief that those individuals have access to that. And the reality is in the United States, particularly when you have the average black family with 10 times less wealth than the average white family, well, well, certainly they don't have access to the same sorts of capital to sort of drive a founding narrative and build a, a business at the, the early onset. And that has sort of secondary and tertiary trickle down effects that really ultimately uh, sort of structurally maintain a lack of equity um, at all stages of of startup formation and venture capital broadly. What, in your view, is an impactful way to begin upending the cycle of inequity? One of the most exciting things that I've seen start to grow has been, um, you know, the, 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 
institutionalization of the, the pre-seed round, which is, a, you know, a venture's attempt in many ways to solve for, you know, the friends and family round. And so I think if we can continue to drive more capital to funds that are trying to, to replace the friends and family round with institutional forms of capital, there's a huge opportunity. But we have to make sure that those managers are diverse fundamentally. And, and really at that level, they should be some of the most diverse individuals so that we can drive top of the funnel deals and access for the broader community in the later stage venture rounds. And the reason I bring this up is one of the, the, the things a lot of folks don't realize is you know, the vast majority of black venture investors in the United States are, are young and in their early parts of their career, but also the vast majority of them are actually at much smaller funds. And that means they actually make a lot less money than their peers at, you know, a billion dollar fund or a $300 million fund, or even quite frankly, at a $100 million fund. And, you know, these pre-seed funds tend to be very, very small, right? We're talking about funds that might be, you know, as little as $5 million in size and up to $20 million. Mm -hmm. and, and because venture capital, when, you know, you're raising your own venture fund, right, to, to go out and invest, you're expected as a general partner to put up money as a GP commitment to that fund, um, we might actually inadvertently, if we only drive diversity in the, these uh, early stage funds, these pre-seed funds, we might create a system where the period it takes for those black investors to have the capital they need to raise their own funds one day may take much longer than their non-black colleagues. And this is why we need diversity at every stage of venture. What you're alluding to is the, the legacy of systemic racism in this country, in the wealth gap, in the promotion gaps, in the ensuing opportunity gaps. Um, can you talk a little bit about how VCs can find and support diverse talent? One of the problems of venture capital is that over 40% of VCs went to two schools, Stanford and Harvard. Um, and I'm no, no exception to that. I went to Stanford. Um, and that creates a very small aperture in terms of where talent can come from. Now, the good news is almost 60% of VCs don't go to those schools. But if you exclude the Ivy League, you're dealing with a much smaller pool. And the reality is, I think as a country, we need to reflect on how we think of the role of elite universities across different diverse communities. You know, I think at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of great academic institutions um, that, that do a great job of creating um, diverse talent and educating diverse talent that, that can be a pipeline into venture capital, into tech, or any industry in corporate America. But we need to be willing to understand that these schools exist and that we can engage with them. And so, you know, first of all, there are incredible HBCUs or historically black colleges and universities throughout this country, yet the average venture capitalist isn't really that privy to these institutions and the role that they've played in, in, in the black community over the years. And I think, you know, the real, you know, observation, I think many of us and reflection we need to make is that, you know, it might be that if you grow up in a, you know, underserved community uh, in, in the Midwest, going to Ohio State might actually be just as great of an accomplishment as someone who grows up in a high SES environment with privilege going to an Ivy League school. And, and that's the key. We need to sort of open up, you know, our understanding of what it takes um, and what academic pedigrees you need to be successful. Um, you know, as I alluded to the, the statistics earlier, you know, there's a lot of people that are not Black that don't go to Ivy League universities that make it into venture.
Yet when I look at you know, the, the community of black VC, I mean, we're talking about 80 plus percent have gone to Stanford or Harvard, and that's just not a sustainable or scalable system. Thank you so much, Frederick. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. That's the show for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here on Monday. And in the meantime, we hope you're staying safe and getting all the support that you need. Enjoy your weekend. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.